Welcome to the Diet Doctor Podcast with Dr. Brett Scher. Today I'm joined by Dr. David Unwin. Dr. Unwin is a general practitioner in Northern England. And you know what's interesting is when I usually do these introductions, I'm going to tell you about their website and their books and all their products. Dr. Unwin's completely different. He is a, a general practitioner taking care of patients, and that's what he does, and that's what he loves. And during this discussion, you're going to see his journey. The journey he took from being sort of the standard general practitioner to noticing and implementing a low-carb lifestyle and the joy it brought back to him in his in his practice because he was seeing the improvement in his patients. It's a, it's a wonderful journey, and I hope you can pick up on, on his joy and how this, pro, how this process led him to see medicine in a different light and how not only has he been helping the patients he sees, but now he's been taking on uh, leadership roles and advisory roles to try and help others implement this. And it's, it's a lesson we can all learn, and, and hopefully you'll take away from this the type of physician you should be looking for, but also how to interact with your physician if he's not of, he or she is not of the caliber of Dr. Unwin. Um, it's a wonderful journey, and I hope you really enjoy this discussion. For the transcripts, please go to dietdoctor.com, and you can also see all our past uh, podcast episodes there as well. Thank you very much, and enjoy this interview with Dr. David Unwin. Dr. David Unwin, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. Hi, here I am. All right. So as we can tell by your accent, you are from England, correct? That's right, the north of England. North of England. Yes. And you're a general practitioner and you have been for how long? I started in partnership in 1986. 1986. Yeah. And from 1986 to 2012, you practiced in a particular manner. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was doing my best. Yeah. I think I was very average, really. I was so disappointed with the results I was achieving. And what do you mean by that? Um, what were the results you were achieving that yeah. were not up to what you wanted? When I look back now, it sneaked up on me, really. I didn't notice for the first few years. And then after a while, you start to realize that nobody looks really very much better. I'm talking mainly about people with obesity and type 2 diabetes, but other conditions as well. And I think I was, I just started noticing that people didn't really seem to look healthy for what I was doing. Yeah. And what were you using as the framework for how to treat them? Well, we're, reg we're pretty closely regulated. So I was using the usual guidelines that all GPs in the UK use. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that the payment system is slightly based on the guidelines as well. So it was a good idea to do conventional medicine. And, and uh, we, they're called QOF, Quality and Outcome Framework Payments. And uh, we did very well with those. And so it, it looked on the surface of it that we were doing quite well. So the closer you adhere to the guidelines, the more you got paid, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although the the um, the COF figures on diabetes for our practice were quite disappointing, uh, which was a bit difficult to understand. We didn't seem to be doing very well. So I had, on the one hand, a sort of sneaking suspicion or a feeling that medicine wasn't what I'd hoped. Mm. So when you're young, you, you become a doctor because you want to make a difference. Right. It's not really about money. It's all you have this shining thing that you want to make a difference. And then the years pass by and you sometimes wonder whether you are making much of a difference because, you know, patients didn't look really very much better. And, and during my time, we'd had an eightfold increase in the in the number of people with diabetes. So... That didn't look really a good reflection on me. Right. <laughs> so there was an eightfold 
increase in the people with diabetes. So we had 57 when I started people. That was in total. In out, your practice? Yeah, out of 9,000 patients. Oh, wow. And um, we've now got about 470. Wow. So that, that was... So there was... I, I watched that happening. I just had this sneaking suspicion I was letting people down somehow. Right. That I wasn't achieving what I thought was health and what patients thought was health because some of the things I measured seemed a bit better, but their experience of life wasn't improving. And I'm guessing you weren't the only person to to see that sort of a change, but for some reason it hit you more deeply and you had a deeper awareness of, yeah. of what was happening. I think in part because I knew I was coming to the end of my career and you tend to reflect. Hmm. So when I was 55, you're tending to look back on your career and, and I, I was disappointed. Interesting. And I was disappointed in myself, really. And then how did you change? Well, several things happen, happened. There, there's one particular case I've talked about before where there was a patient who... So in 25 years, I'd never seen a single uh, person put their diabetes into remission. I'd not seen it once. I didn't even really know it was possible. Right, we're not taught that it's possible. No, no. Right. I, I, my, my model was that the people with diabetes was a chronic deteriorating condition, and I could expect that they would deteriorate and I would add drugs and that's what would be normally going to happen. Right. And then one particular patient um, wasn't taking her drugs and she um, actually went on the low-carb diet and put her diabetes into remission. But she confronted me with, you know, surely, Dr. Omin, surely you know that actually sugar's not a good thing for diabetes. And I, yes, I do. But then she said... But you never once in all the years mentioned that really bread was sugar, did you? And, you know, I never did. I'd, I don't know what my excuse was. Um, and so th this this lady had done this wonderful thing and she'd also changed her husband's life as well. She'd, she'd sorted his diabetes out and she'd done it with a low-carb diet and that really made me think. I didn't know much about it. Right. I didn't know much about it. So I, f I found out, well, she'd been on... Um, the low-carb forum of diabetes.co.uk. And to my amazement, there was 40,000 people on there all doing this amazing thing. And I, I was blown away. But then I was very sad because the, the stories of the people online were full of doctors who were critical of these people's achievements. Right. And practice nurses who were uh, saying, oh, you'll come to harm, you know, I won't take any responsibility for you if you give up your drugs. Yeah, there's a definite fear factor yes, there, isn't there? Yes, there was. There? They, yeah. they were being blamed. I thought that was terrible, yeah. really terrible, when they would seem to be doing their best. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, I went to run one day with my wife, Jen, and she, she was saying, you know, you see me, how do you feel about retiring? And I said, I don't know, I'm a bit disappointed. And she said, shall we not do, shall we not do one decent thing? one good thing in medicine together before you finish. And I'd just seen this case and um, I'd begun to read around it. And so she said, well, who would be the group of people who you'd really like to help? And so I thought people with obesity and type 2 diabetes would be a, ch a great challenge. And if we could help them, that would be brilliant. Then the next thing she said, well, why don't we do this? And I said, because we're not paid. <laughs> she's not paid and uh so she and she's a great woman she said so we're not paid and that and that's why you won't do this thing and so 
shall we not just think our way around this? So it was Jen's idea. She said, "Why? first of all, why don't we work for free? So um, we came up with the idea of on a Monday night, the practice wasn't being used very much and that my wife would work for free and I would work for free um, so the partners wouldn't mind. And another idea was why don't we do the people in groups of 20? We were very cautious at the beginning uh, so that... It wasn't just people with diabetes. I was really concerned about the people with pre-diabetes because mm -hmm. we just started screening for them. So we knew who they were, but we weren't doing anything for them. So it was ridiculous because we, we, we knew who they were and we were just sort of waiting till they developed diabetes. Right, and that's part of that eightfold increase that yeah, you saw in yeah, diabetes so, where all those people had pre-diabetes when you were taking care of them. Yeah, so yeah. Why, why were we waiting? And it, within that group, I think particularly the younger people, what a shame not to help them. So we, we sort of, thought let's begin with the younger people with pre-diabetes and invite them in groups of 20 and do them as a group. And then Jen and I learnt about low carb with these people. Um, so we bought each one of them, um, we bought each one of them a book on low carb. And then we did cookery lessons together on a Monday night. I remember I did, we did like, how fast can Dr. Omin make leek soup? Sort of, <laughs> it's about three and a half minutes. Wow. We did that sort of thing. So we did it in a group with the patients. Yeah. And I was so surprised because I had such fun. You had such fun yeah. and probably were seeing a success you hadn't seen in your practice and yeah. a new level of enjoyment that you hadn't seen in your practice for a while. Well, the first thing I noticed um, was how I enjoyed the experience of group work with my patients because we're not doctors you know we're used to one-to-one -to -one, right but we're not really used to groups so i was quite scared almost of not being in charge of the one-to-one -one thing and then but the group work was so great i wonder why was it so good i think it's so good because the group dynamic becomes very interesting and patients try and help each other and they were very kind to me and then I started seeing them improve, which right. happened quite rapidly. So you went from just doing it on Monday nights to now basically basing yeah. your practice on it. Yes, yeah. Yeah, every surgery. So that the, there was a difficulty because at the time what I was doing was seen as being, I don't know, not dangerous but weird. And so it's important, like him. yeah. And it's important to sort of set the stage, right? Because you work for the NHS, the Natural yeah. Health Services yeah. in England, and um, it's sort of a government-run program with one payer and one set of rules. And would you say it's fairly restrictive in what what they say is within the scope of what you can do? Well, that's so interesting. I thought that, yeah. yes, and then uh, so. We developed this for a little while and we started with the pre-diabetes and then people with diabetes started sneaking in because they'd heard it was... And so they started and they said, well, we want to do the same thing. And then we started getting some very good results with diabetes. And um, I thought what I was doing was not really part of the guidelines. But, you know, I hadn't really read the guidelines, not all of them, because they go to pages and pages. So because I felt vulnerable, I thought I'll read the gu every word of the guidelines and then inside the, the nice guidelines in the uk i found some pure gold so the n-i-c-e yeah nice guidelines. nice guidelines for the uk and it says we should advise high fiber low glycemic index sources of carbohydrate for people with diabetes and when i found this i was so excited because i knew then i'd got something that could make what i was doing it, i knew it was effective but it could be safe 
and I was not going to be criticized as much for this. And that's interesting. That's an interesting point that the hanging on the low glycemic index, because mm. that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to understand or interpret and put into practice. It but it's, it's a very um, common catchphrase, but maybe not the most practical. But it seems like you found a more practical way I to did. interpret well, this. That, that's an interesting story. So I became obsessed with the glycemic index and the glycemic load, which is calculated from it. And I tried, I was also obsessed with the results we were getting. So I became a real low-carb bore. I went on and on to the partners. And one of my partners, Cotty Schultz, she said, you know, David, this is getting really boring now because we don't really understand. You're, t you're talking to us about the, the low GI, but we don't really know what you're talking about. So why don't you go away and come back when you can really explain the, yeah, she said, when you can really explain it, to a plumber, to a student, to other GPs. Uh, and so I'm very grateful to Cotty because she, she was absolutely right. I was a low-carb bore and the GI and all this. So I, I really started thinking about how would you communicate the effects on your blood glucose of eating foods with carbohydrate in? How can we help people understand the glycemic consequences of their dietary choices? And... Um, I came up with an idea. Well, the first thing really was why, why was it so confusing? Why did people not understand it? And I, I, I decided it was because people are not really familiar with glucose because the glycemic index and the glycemic load always works out two grams of glucose. So this amount of food is equivalent to so many grams of glucose right. in, in, as a glycemic load. And um, really, I don't think doctors or patients are very familiar with glucose as a substance. What do you mean by that? Because beyond glucose is sugar, right? So, well, it isn't really, you know. is it? You see, because yeah. sugar is table sugar, which right. is, you know, so that's table. So people know table sugar, but they don't really use glucose in cooking. Mm -hmm. And they don't really know what does, what does 10 grams of glucose look like. They were not really familiar, particularly in the north of England, they're not using glucose for right. anything. They wouldn't know what it looks like. So... I was looking for something that patients and doctors would understand and would be familiar to them. So I thought, I wondered whether it would be valid to redo the calculations in terms of something we are familiar with, which is a four gram standard teaspoon of table sugar. So a four gram teaspoon of table of sugar. Table sugar, and yeah. And put that into glucose equivalent. So exactly. now you can visualize it. You can yeah. see the tablespoon and you can see. Yeah, and you think that's what it does. So, yeah. um, I was really lucky. I contacted the original people who developed and experimented and, and published the work on the glycemic, glycemic index and the glycemic load, and they are actually in Sydney. And Professor, I think it's Jenny Brand Miller. And I emailed her, and to my amazement, she emailed back. I was so surprised. And I, I was asking for help. I was saying, is my idea valid? Mm -hmm. And will you help me? And she said, you know, uh, I, I don't know, but I know somebody that will help you. And that was Dr. Jeffrey Leavesey, who was one of the academics who'd worked with her on the glycemic index and glycemic load. And Jeffrey has helped me. And so he redid the calculations for 800 foods. 800 in, foods. 800 foods wow. in terms of teaspoons of sugar. Yeah. So I can now tell you that 150 grams of boiled rice is about the same in terms of what it will do to your blood glucose as 10 
teaspoons of sugar. So whether you have 10 teaspoons of sugar or 150 grams, a small bowl of boiled rice is about the same. Wow. And patients find that very surprising. Very surprising, yeah. yeah. I'm sure you see people's eyes just do. pop open Honestly, and there's like awareness that they haven't had before. Yeah, it's such a quick way for them to understand how carbohydrates... Uh, and, and do you know this? It helps them because they're so mystified because so many patients say to me, well, Dr. Roman, I know that uh, you shouldn't have sugar if you have diabetes and I haven't had sugar for months now and yet my blood results are terrible. Yeah. You know, and they, they don't know how to... And previously, I didn't know how to explain this, but now I can say, well, let's look at what you're eating. Right. And then if you're having a takeaway, the rice, no wonder. Or if you take, I don't know, boiled potatoes, 150 grams, that's about nine teaspoons of sugar. Wow. Or even... Um, a small slice of healthy wholemeal brown bread is the same as three teaspoons of sugar. So you can begin to see that some items in your diet may not be a great choice yeah. if you have type 2 diabetes. And in, Right, and in fairness, that, the, that glucose equivalent, that sugar equivalent, is going to react differently in different people depending on their metabolic health. Yes. But when you're dealing with a population that's obese and pre-diabetic or yeah. diabetic... That's where the concern is. So I can see how, how phrasing it that way will really make people understand it better. I think there are two really important points. So one is, the, is helping them understand that, they, that this is where the sugar is coming from. Mm -hmm. But the other vital thing um, is, is giving them hope. That's so, so important. And I, I think hope is even more important. The idea that, yes, you have diabetes, but it doesn't have to be chronic deteriorating and that original case that showed me you could put it into remission if you could repeat that how wonderful for people and when i now because i've I, I think we've done 60 now so i've got 60 patients who've put their type 2 diabetes into remission so i'm able to say with confidence to people you know stand a good chance yeah in fact i can say that of the of my patients who uh, take up low carb about 45% of them will put their diabetes into remission, which is amazing. Remarkable. Well, no drug can do that. No, it can't. And particularly, well, I never saw a single case of that in 25 right. years. And 25 now years. Yeah, yeah, not one. And now reliably, week after week, I'm seeing people, I'm getting them off uh, drugs for, for type 2 diabetes. And they're coming in and getting these marvelous results. And it, yeah. it's such cheerful medicine. It makes me, like, do you know, I often ring them up. I love it now. You know, when you get the blood results, I keep them like a treat for the end of the day. You know, the hemoglobin A1Cs, the liver function, and all. Right. I keep it like a treat because so many of them are good, and I'd ring them up at home. Yeah. You know, when did you, is, how often do patients get a cheerful phone call from their GP to say, I'm just ringing you to tell you it's amazing you've done so well? Now, what do you use as the as the as the um, cutoff for the diagnosis? Is it an A one C? I use a hemoglobin A one C. Okay, what level usually? For so I, I, I think on the whole now I agree with Roy Taylor. So, I'm defining remission of type two diabetes as being off drugs mm -hmm. for at least two months, and a hemoglobin A one C in millimoles per mole of less than forty eight. Okay. You'd have to convert that into yeah. percent for the listeners because I can't remember what that is. Okay, we'll have to work on You'll that. Have to, maybe it could come up on the screen. Yeah. That would be uh, helpful. Point. So that's, that's 
the definition, and, and Roy published that in the British Medical Journal. Okay. So, very good. And, and, and I have to remark, which I'm sure people on the video can see, but the people on the audio might not be able to, the, your face sort of lit up as you were describing yeah. it to me, the way you, you can call these patients and give them the news. Your face like just yeah, lit up. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such wonderful medicine. I never thought I'd live to enjoy it so much. Yeah. Amazing, you know, I'm old, I'm over 60, and I'm still there. I didn't expect, I was supposed to be retired six years ago. That was the plan, and I'm still there. It's really addictive. Because all the time, I don't know, you just look at the blood results. And it's not really about the blood results, is it? Yeah. Imagine the patients, how they feel when they come in and they lost weight. It's not even just diabetes. It's really not just diabetes. Right, that was going to be my next question. So you're focusing on the diabetes, but what other, you could say, um, unintended effects or yeah. other downstream effects, which actually should be intended well, effects. But what else did so you find? That's so interesting. So in the... In, one of the things that surprised me most in the beginning was dramatic improvements in liver function. Dramatic. Right. The fatty liver going yeah, away. Yeah, that was so interesting because um, I saw patterns. I began to see that I could predict the patients who were doing really well before they came into my room because I got the, I'd get the blood results and I'd see the liver function improving. And I know this is one that's doing really well. And right. that would, the liver function would seem to improve almost before anything else. Interesting. Uh, I'm now getting, it's about 40 to 50% improvements in liver function in gamma GT, which is the thing I measure. That was the first thing. The next really interesting thing, and this happened to me as well, I used to have high blood pressure. But it started that when I stood up, I felt dizzy. And my blood pressure was dropping. That happens in the first few weeks. And then it was happening with patients. And I was discovering that I could take, I could stop lots of the drugs that I had them on for hypertension. Right. So every week I was stopping amlodipine, perindopril, loads of drugs that they were on to keep them safe because I worried that they'd faint if they stood up. Right. So imagine how that is for a doctor after 25 years that I, patients, it wasn't just about diabetes, it started broadening out. So we had the blood pressure, uh, the weight, they were losing significant weight, particularly off the belly. Mm -hmm. They really liked that. Uh, the belly was going down. Triglycerides were another thing. I'd worried about triglycerides for years, and I never knew what to say to patients. Because you you did the blood test, and the triglyceride was sky high, but I never really knew why. Yeah. And, of course, there's no real drug for triglycerides, so what do you say? And I'm embarrassed to say I used to fudge it. I'd say it's a bit high, you know, you probably need to lose a bit of weight and we'll redo it again in six months and hope another doctor did the test in six months. Because <laughs> really, I didn't know what, what did this, why, why did triglyceride matter? But I found it dropping significantly. And another thing, I don't know whether you've noticed this, have you noticed the first change I see in people is their, their, their skin improves? That's nearly... One of the first things, within a couple of weeks, sometimes the skin improves. Yeah. And the other thing is their eyes look bigger. Bigger? Yeah, I think they're losing fat around the eyes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I always have a little bet with myself. When I see them in the waiting room from a distance, I have a little private bet about this one's going to be good. This <laughs> one's going to be good. Before I weigh them. And, and the ones who have their eyes look brighter and bigger, they've nearly always lost weight. And I, I wonder whether they're losing either periorbital fluid or periorbital fat, mm. I don't know, but they, it's a thing I've noticed again and again that I see first. And this goes back to sort of how we started this conversation where you said people just weren't looking good, they weren't looking healthy. Exactly. And I've heard you make that analogy, I want to hear your analogy mm. to animals about yeah. the same sort of thing. Well, that's a, 
a separate thing. So I've had a lifelong interest in uh, natural history. I'm, I'm fascinated by wild animals. I, I run a series of, of uh, bird sanctuaries. So I do a lot of watching of animals in the wild. I've had all sorts of pets, lots of weird, weird animals that I've had as uh, pets. And I, I, another one of the things that had troubled me over the years was human beings don't look like healthy animals. You know, if you go down the street, how many would strike you as a really strikingly healthy animal? Not very many. Right. Isn't that odd? Yeah. And, and yet wild animals on the whole do look healthy. And you could say, well, maybe it's because the wild animals are all just young and the people I'm seeing in the street are mainly old. But that's not true because I'm, I started to notice even 30-year-olds who should be in the prime of life were looking obese, with poor skin, they didn't look healthy and they didn't look happy either. And so I used to think, well, this is really odd because human beings are not looking healthy. And suddenly I had this thing that they were looking healthy. And it not only did they look healthy, they felt healthy. And another thing I noticed at the beginning was people... So the average patient I'm dealing with weighs 100 kilos... They weigh 100 kilos and they're not exercising. About 220 pounds. Yeah. It's understandable that you're not exercising if you weigh that much. You don't feel good. No. Yeah. They, they felt sleepy, tired. But when they've lost a bit of weight, they start exercising. Mm -hmm. Again and again, I find patients say, well, I'm a bit bored in the evening, so I'm starting to exercise. Yeah. So we were going from a population who didn't look healthy, didn't act healthy. And as I say, I'd been a bit mystified, unlike everything else in nature where people... You know, they, they, where, sorry, where animals generally in nature look pretty good. Right. And now human beings were beginning to look pretty good. And I thought, I'm, I think I'm onto something here. Yeah. But one of the things was I didn't know any other doctors who were. So I was completely alone at the beginning. Yeah, how'd that feel? I mean, you really felt like oh. you were, were you hesitant saying yeah, like, maybe I'm doing something wrong because nobody else is doing it? Well, you, you wonder whether you're bonkers really, don't you? Wonder, yeah, am I a bit bonkers. mad? You know, am I... Am I trying to convince myself? But then, you know, I started with one and then there was 20 and then there was 25. It worried the partners in the practice what I was doing. They, they were cross with me because they said, really, David, why didn't, shouldn't you be concentrating on sick people? And that upset me because I thought, well, if I don't do something, they are sick. So really, so that troubled me. And then I knew that what I was doing was making some health professionals uncomfortable. And I remember one meeting so I, after I got my first paper published and I went to a big diabetes convention and, and a doctor stood up and absolutely shouted at me and said that what I was doing was dangerous and people would come to harm and I should stop it. He, wow. was, I'd, he was shouting at me. Wow. Yeah, and other people, when they heard my name, would turn, just turn their back on me. Wow. It felt terrible. I was, I was mystified because I thought, well, what am I to do? Because if I go back to doing what I did before... That was so depressing. Yeah. And I, was, I couldn't understand the reaction of the people that seemed so cross. So lack of knowledge and lack of un true understanding. Have you seen that change over, over time or do you still see that level of resistance? It's changed hugely. Yeah. Uh, hugely. And it, it gives me joy because, I, you know, I'm not alone anymore yeah. now. There's loads and loads of doctors doing this. And part of that, I think, has to do with your advocacy. So you started with treating the patients, seeing mm -hmm. the benefits of the patients, getting the joy back. And now you've gone on to 
be sort of a leader and an advocate in the Royal College. So tell us a little bit about yeah. even for, for the American folks, what a Royal College is and your role in it and what kind of impact that's having on patient care. Okay, so the, the Royal College is in the UK, you can't actually be either a general practitioner or a consultant unless you've passed an exam set by your Royal College. So there's a Royal College for general physicians, there's a Royal College for psychiatrists, dermatologists, and a Royal College for general practitioners. Mm -hmm. They're responsible for quality, really, and standards. They're unique, I think, almost in the world in that they are independent. So if you can convince the Royal Colleges what you do is reasonable, and if there is published evidence for this, then they're going to listen to you. And one of the things I'd say to other doctors right at the beginning is keep data. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I did at the beginning, knowing that what what we did at Norwood Avenue, that's the practice, was a bit odd, was I felt I owed it to the patient to really, the patients, you can't experiment on them, you've really got to do blood tests and keep the data. So I started with an Excel spreadsheet. It's funny really, uh, I, owe, I owe all of this to Professor Roy Taylor, uh, who is very famous in the world of diabetes. Shall I tell you the story of Roy Taylor? Sure. Okay. <laughs> so Roy Taylor, when my results first started coming in, I couldn't believe them. I thought there's something, you know, I, I, this is, you can't believe it. It's so unbelievable. I, I don't know, weird after all these years, is it safe? What's going on? So I contacted, I think, about 20 professors to say, this. I'm getting these results and I feel I need to tell the world and I don't know whether it's right or what's going on. And only one professor answered me, and it was Roy Taylor. Oh. And he, he said, what you're doing is, is fascinating and may well be clinically very significant, but we need to do statistics. I didn't know how to do statistics. And he said, well, you need an Excel spreadsheet. I didn't know how to do an Excel spreadsheet. I actually had to get the accountant, to do my accountant, to do an Excel spreadsheet for me because I didn't know how to do it. Yeah. And, but that started me with the data. So I'd say to anybody, if you collect data, so now I know on average with the patients I'm doing, I know what's happening to them. And when you start doing data, it's a bit laborious. Time consuming on top of your day job. Right. But it soon becomes addictive. I don't know, I love doing it now. Mm -hmm. So about twice a week I'm loading my data to see how they're doing and see how the averages are coming on. But that really helped convince the, the Royal College. Um, and then the other thing was we started making drug savings I didn't actually know we were doing this. Um, it was actually, it was one, so we're organized in in in, in the UK. GPs are uh, organized into groups of about 20. They're called CCGs. Okay. But then our CCG pharmacist contacted me one day and said, do you realize you're way below average for our CCG? Not only are you way below average, you are the cheapest practice per thousand head of population in our CCG. Interesting. And she said, I think you're spending about £40,000 less every year on drugs for diabetes than is average for our area. That That's was remarkable. Well, it was amazing. It was very, yeah. I, I got her a bottle of champagne, that woman. <laughs> I was so excited. And it was true. And we've kept that up for three years now. Yeah. And that became very interesting to the college. I bet but also very interesting to other doctors and also politicians. So now you don't have to worry so much about being outside standard of care because you're showing you have evidence, you have data to show how you're benefiting the patient and benefiting the bottom line with medication well, prices. It, it's not even that, is it? Because 
I think I am doing low glycemic index sources of carbohydrate for diabetes, which is part of the NICE guidelines. But I think I just ignored that and went straight to drugs. Yeah. So I didn't really believe in lifestyle medicine. So now I'm really focusing on that. And I'll tell you, I think it's five years or maybe six years now, every single patient that I diagnose diabetes with, I offer them a choice. So I, I say, right, well, we could do this two ways. I believe that I can help you with this, with diet, and we need to start talking sugar and starchy carbs. Mm-hmm. Or if that isn't your thing, we could start drugs, lifelong medication. But you know, not a single patient, not one in all these years has asked for the drugs. Interesting. Not one. And so other doctors say to me, well, my patients wouldn't be interested. But, you know, my patients weren't interested for the first 25 years because I didn't give them that choice. And I think if we could give people the choice and offer support. So I say, shall we for three months? How about we have a go? Yeah. I'm up for this. Yeah. I'm up for this thing. How about we have a go? Shall we talk to your wife? Shall we, you know, who does the cooking? Who's doing the shopping in your family? And I think you then develop it. They know I care. What would you advise to patients who are seeing a doctor who doesn't bring it up and just prescribes the medication and yes. doesn't think it's a, an option or doesn't think they'd be interested, but in the back of their brain, they're wondering, how would you advise yeah. them to address their physician? You, right. I think you always have to cooperate with your doctor because at the end of the day, he's got your records and maybe you can't get another doctor anyway. Uh, doctors are difficult, aren't they? Now there's not enough of us. You have to work with your doctor, but I think it's, would it not be reasonable to say to your doctor, this is something I've read about would you mind, could I try this? Mm-hmm. Could I try this? Would you give me the trans to try this? And I think if a patient asks their doctor reasonably, then the doctor would at least have to justify refusing that. Yeah, I think but, that's good advice. I, that, that's yeah. similar to the advice I give in that you're not saying this is the way I'm going, no, this no, no, is no. what I want to do. You say, will you work with me yes. on a trial? And these are the things we can measure. We can see how I feel exactly. and my weight and my blood test. And let's yeah. just see what happens in yeah. three months and six months. Yeah. Then we'll revisit it, and if I'm feeling horribly, we'll come back to the medication yeah. question. Exactly. Yeah. I, and I think you said a good thing there, which is agree what you're going to measure. What are the outcomes for success? Right. So for me, actually, I find waist circumference very good. Right. Waist circumference, and the patient can do that, and then they're getting feedback. Right. Better than weight, better than body mass index, I weight do, circumference. Um, both. Yeah. Both. I mean... Because I've actually had patients, I don't know about you, I've had patients whose diabetes has improved significantly without weight loss. Without weight loss, right. But you have can you see, that? yes, I have. And yeah. you, but you can see body composition changes they change. without the weight loss. Yeah. Absolutely. Some of them, have they put on muscle? Probably. Mm-hmm. But the belly's gone small, hasn't it? Yeah. So it's worth measuring both. That's a really, because there are people who don't believe that, you know. There are clinicians who don't believe you could improve diabetes without weight loss. Right. There definitely are, but right. you, you, you can. I was going to say something about motivation i think this is some of the stuff i've learned from my very clever wife jen um and that is so the first thing is giving patients hope Mm -hmm. um uh, it's a really interesting subject the subject of hope and how do we give people hope of a better future and asking about their goals the next thing is is feedback is absolutely central to behavior change isn't it? it is central so I love that. I don't know any of the any of the listeners who've seen my my Twitter stuff, but I do this graph of the week. So our uh, computer systems generate graphs of weight, hemoglobin, and 
So every week there's the patient that's done the best. And those patients are so proud. So I always put it up on Twitter. But what wonderful feedback that is. Yeah. So um, Unless we get into long-term and short-term goals. Yes. Right. So the short-term goals are the stepping stones to get you to long-term goals. But they give you hope. They show you immediate feedback that you're having progress and it keeps you interested. Yeah. That brings me to a point, you know, I didn't used to recheck hemoglobin A1C all that often. So I wouldn't check it for six months. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the fastest remission of type 2 diabetes looking at the hemoglobin A1C I've ever seen was 38 days. Wow. So this guy had a hemoglobin A1C, I think it was about 62, and he brought it down to 38 millimoles per mole. That's really significant remission, and that was done in 38 days. Now, previously, I would have missed that wonderful result because I wasn't checking them soon enough. Right. So I would say if if a patient is losing weight and if they, they're really doing the low-carb thing, it is worth redoing the hemoglobin A1C, certainly after two months, because that feedback is, is like oxygen to that patient and, it, and the doctor too, because you're wondering whether you're doing yeah. a good thing. So I think it's worth doing a few more blood tests so that as part of the contract for the patient with me, okay, you don't want, you don't want to have drugs, great, would you mind having a few more blood tests? Mm-hmm. Um, and do you know they, on the whole, they don't. I think that's a great perspective of your approach and how you um, incorporate your wife's approach, Jen's mm-hmm. approach as well, because behavior change and the psychology of behavior change is so important, right? It is. We can talk about the biochemistry of how things work, the science of how things work, but if we can't get people to buy into it and sustain yes. it, and it doesn't really matter what the science says. And do you know, I think we've missed a trick in, in, in medicine. So much of chronic disease depends upon behavior change. Mm-hmm. And who's an expert in behavior change? Oh, it's a clinical psychologist. But whoever asked the clinic, and they know stuff, but we never ask them. Right. And I realize now I'd spent 25 years telling people what to do, like doing medicine to people. Right. Whereas what I'm doing now is more collaborating with patients. And that involves really taking on board behavior change and people's personal goals. You know, what, what is, what's their goal? You've got to talk to your patients, find out what are they hoping yeah. for. And, and I will, again, that the Royal College of General Practitioners is really committed now to collaborating with patients because you can't solve. One of the big things we've got is multiple morbidity, isn't it? People who have, they haven't got one thing wrong or two or three, they've got four or five things. Mm-hmm. You can't possibly sort out multiple morbidity without working with the patient and their goals. And as I say, the Royal College, I think the British Royal College of General Practitioners, they're way ahead in the world because they're the only people talking about collaborating co- collaborating with patients, working with patients. Yeah, important and, perspective. Yeah, and they've made me, I, just to show off, can I show off? Please do. I'm going to show Please do. You need to. Uh, Yeah, they've made me national champion for collaborative care in diabetes and obesity in in the UK because of my commitment to working with patients. Yeah. But it's a selfish commitment because it's just better medicine. It's just much more fun. So at the start, people are yelling at you and condemning you, and now you've been made the champion of collaborative care in diabetes. I mean, that's that's a remarkable journey. It's a a turnaround. I'm sure I'm still irritating a lot of people. It's very difficult, you know, um, I'm certain I am irritating people, but, you know, they're working at 10 minute appointments. Mm. It's hard and you can't get locums. It's a really, it's a long day. It's a really hard day. 
and and then this this doctor comes along and starts saying oh what you're doing you know you should be doing it this way and why don't you do this as well and why don't you run groups as well i'm very i really understand how difficult it is if you're very tired to start taking on because equally how about heart disease how about so many other subjects aren't there right so uh, yeah any gps out there that i'm annoyed that that i've annoyed i'm sorry i apologize well, your story is fantastic and a, and a great learning experience for physicians. I mean, I mm-hmm. hope there are a number of physicians listening who who can see sort of your progression and the joy that you've gotten from helping people more yeah. than you were before. And then for patients to understand the type of doctor they should be looking for. You know, I wish everybody could work with you, but but clearly that that's not possible. But hopefully there are more like you that they can work with and how to sort of frame the conversation a little bit differently yeah. with their doctor. I've got another yeah. thing to, to add on that. I think very often we're telling patients what to do, mm-hmm. but we're not framing it very well. So I, now I'm trying to frame my information and advice in terms of physiology that a patient can understand. And I, I think then the patient can decide whether to take my advice or not because mm-hmm. they're in a better position. So I'd quite like to just add a little bit about insulin. Sure. Insulin. So I explain to patients with type 2 diabetes that um, one of your problems is insulin. So what happens is if, if you eat the 150 grams of rice, then you re, you know, you're going to absorb about 10 teaspoon equivalents of glucose into your bloodstream. What does the body do with that glucose? Where does it go? Because you are you are programmed we know that high blood glucose it's dangerous so your body has to get rid of the glucose yeah insulin is the hormone that gets rid of glucose to keep you safe insulin pushes glucose into cells to get rid of it and it pushes glucose into your muscle cells for energy which is fair enough but maybe you're taking in more glucose than you need for energy what happens to the rest of it and that glucose is being pushed into your belly fat to make you fatter and it's being pushed into your liver to make into triglyceride and could give you fatty liver. And anybody with a big belly in middle age is beginning to understand that maybe the toast, the rice, the whatever, might have something to do with a big belly. And so what I'm saying to them, they've got a little hook in, in their own lives to think maybe he's telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And then if they take my advice and the belly gets smaller, they think, oh, Dr. Omin might have got, made a good point. So I think this idea of really thinking about communicating with people in 10 minutes to give them information that is uh, relevant to the goals that they have. So if you want to get rid of your belly, I, I can talk about getting rid of belly fat or people want all sorts of different things. But let's talk about physiology. And particularly if you relate diet to physiology, it becomes more powerful, I think. I think so, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us and sharing your journey. I, I hope there's a lot that people can take from this to to imply to their own lives and, and sort of chart their path for health. And I love to see the, the joy in your eyes and the excitement of, of helping people come back. So thank you very much. I hope they like it too. <laughs> All right. This has been a pleasure.